Last week in episode one, I sat down with filmmaker, screenwriter, and activist Kimberly Weir to begin a discussion on race, gender, and politics. This week, join us for the second part of the conversation, where we delve further into the issues that are at play in our systems in America, digging into topics like abortion, policing, education, agriculture, and more. I'm Joy Dertinger, and this is 99 Lead Balloons. Episode 2, Race, Gender, and Politics, Part 2. Oh, God. Astounding. Yeah. And then I think particularly about agriculture, I listened to an episode of Pod Save the People yesterday on that particular episode. It was a a husband and wife. They're a couple who were being interviewed about what it is like to be black farmers in America and hearing, you know, how difficult it is to get uh, USDA um, loans to get the funding that they need to maintain their own property, like a- all of those things. And, and it's designed to be that way, like systematically. Yeah. Um, you know, like from 1910 today, I think like in 1910, there's something like uh, 15% of um, American farmers were, you know, we're black people. And this is saying, and that's saying something, right? Because mm-hmm. you have to understand that, um, you know, before they were freed, what, what is it that slaves did? You know, you can't say that these people didn't understand agriculture. Right. Like agriculture was a natural, you know, it was a natural step up for them. Mm-hmm. Once freed, it only made sense that these people would try to acquire land and do what they knew. You know what I mean? Like if you've been working the land your entire life, now that you're free, you're going to work the land, you know, for for yourself now. Yeah. Um, but from day one, the system made it very hard for them to, number one, acquire land. And if they managed to acquire it, then it made it very hard to keep land. You know, um, a lot of times if they got a little bit ahead, you know, uh, you know, white farmers would come and like raise their crops or, you know, burn their house down. And mm. there was no repercussions for that, no real justice system to you know, uh, to come combat that. Mm-hmm. A lot of times they would just have to end up, you know, going further. They'd have to just end up abandoning, abandoning their life, heading north, mm-hmm. where they would end up in what, you know, amounts to a northern ghetto, you know, because yeah. the north had its own problems. Right. And so by the time you get to 1910, you have 14% of uh, American farmers are, you know, uh, are, are black Americans. Today, only 2%. And that goes again into like, you know, uh, you know, the canal study that said that uh, in a lot of ways, not only have we not progressed, we're actually regressing. Yeah. And if you do not understand what's at stake, the way that the system is designed, not just to provide a barrier, but to actively chop away at, you know, at people's ability to just survive. Right. You know, it absolutely breaks your heart. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that was something that was shared in the, in the podcast uh, that I, in the episode that I was listening to as well. Um, not the statistic from 1910, yeah. but um, the fact that only 2% of farmers are, are black in America right now. And there was something um, 
they said something about, you know, how the black farming community is not um, concentrated to one area. You know, the black farming community is spread out across the country, which mm -hmm. then makes it even more difficult um, to to get support, like just on an emotional level. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, there's a safety in numbers. There's a, you know, unions are a powerful thing, even if they're, you know, in informal unions, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but if you have a community, then you have, a, you have power on the ground. Yeah. People know this. Disbanding community is one of the first, it's one of the first things to go when you want to take power from the people. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Um, that makes me think of Tulsa. Um, yes, Tulsa. <laughs> Which, by the way, like, uh, I don't know. It, I, I'm sure you've heard it before. But one of the things that every time I hear it, I want to just, I don't know. I don't know whether I want to cut out my own ears or fuck out somebody else's tongue. But like, <laughs> it's super graphic. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm here for it. Say it. <laughs> like the amount of ignorance. But, um, you hear constantly when you're, you know, a black American and you're talking about these issues of, well, we did it. Well, why can't you? That is the most mm -hmm. blind ignorance, just the most uninformed question anybody in existence can ask. The minute you ask it, I know not only are you not informed, not only do you have not have an accurate understanding of history in general, not just black history, like history in general, you're not equipped to have this conversation with me. Like there is no point in arguing with you because you do not have context. You don't have a correct understanding of what you're arguing about. Yeah. So, so how do we, so how do we bridge that? You know, how do we move forward from that? Is there any point, you know, because uh, to ask why can't you do it ignores that from the very beginning of the reconstruction era, there has been a persistent and violent system in place to take away from black progress. Mm. They'll get a little bit of head, a little bit ahead, and someone will literally come along and burn it down. Right. <laughs> and so how many times can you keep rebuilding? How many times can you as a people keep pressing up against the same monster uh. and having all of your things destroyed, getting no reparation, reparations for the wealth that you managed to attain that has been stolen up from under you. Mm. And then to have someone at the end of it be like, oh, I don't understand how you can't do what I did. Mm. Uh, <laughs> yeah. What is it that you're not understanding? You know, like right. there, people are only just now learning about Tulsa in the, you know, in the, in the uh, reconstruction era, long before Tulsa, there was over a hundred different mob riots that ended up in destroying black property, black wealth, Ma you know, massacres where people died. Mm. There's hundreds of them yeah. in one, in that one slice of, uh, of of history alone. Right. People were literally killed on their way to you know uh, on their way to voting. Mm. When Martin Luther King, you know, marched across the bridge, you know, he he they did so in a group, not because they were trying to make some big statement. I mean, of course, that was part of it. But largely, they did so because they knew that if they marched together in a big group, some of them would make it to to the voting polls. Mm. It was literally like the mentality of they cannot, they literally cannot shoot us all. God. And when you understand that, this question of I don't understand 
why you, you can't do what my ancestors and I have done. It's ludicrous. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it also betrays, uh, you know, the ignorance of the fact that you mentioned reparation, reparations have not been paid to the black community and to um, the descendants of enslaved people. Uh, ha- however, reparations were paid to slave owners. Reparations were paid to plantation owners. So when people say, well, I don't understand why you can't just do what we did. You did. We didn't do it. <laughs> Like the government helped us out, right? You know, um, and like generational wealth matters. It really does. Yeah. Home ownership matters. Home ownership is the foundation of American wealth. Mm. It is the first step to gaining true equity in America. Yeah. And when black people can't get homes, when you won't finance them for loans, when you have policies that allow you to sell them crooked mortgages that aren't really mortgages where we can just take your house up from underneath you when that goes on for a couple of decades <laughs> before mm-hmm. you finally decide to be like oh that's not fair mm-hmm. you know uh, i mean who are we kidding here you know yeah who are we kidding yeah yeah i mean there's there's so much uh history um that like most of what we're discussing, like I said, I learned as an adult. And I think that like something like that is another example of the fact that that history wasn't taught because, you know, we didn't want it to be taught. Um, we in, as white people did not want that history to be shared because, you know, God forbid we humanize another group of people. Let's continue to benefit from this system that we have set up and we're so committed to benefiting from it that we will omit like literally half of our history mm-hmm. in order to do so um which you know means that like in order to omit those things we had to make sure that we did not include any um you know history books written uh, by black historians. We had to make sure that we didn't include any literature written, um, you know, by black writers. We have to make sure that we don't include any plays written by any black playwrights or movies by any black screenwriters or producers or directors. We couldn't possibly have that. And we, yeah. and we definitely can't have black teachers because if we have black teachers and black administrators, principals, um, superintendents, you know, um, uh, you know, people on the board of education, if we do that, then things will start to change because, oh my gosh, stories will be shared. History will be made known. And so we must continue to push it down, compress the whole thing and share only slices, only pieces of our history because if we include the whole you know complete thing then we lose all power it's true it is one of the most pervasive things at this point in our conversation some folks in kim's neighborhood started setting off fireworks which you'll hear intermittently for the rest of the episode a system of oppression, I mean, it, it's built into the word. It's a system. Yeah. Like sometimes people hear the word oppression and immediately I think that our minds go to 
um, you know, again, the heart problem, like the inner feelings, like the, how mm -hmm. do we deal with this, the inner sin of racism? Well, uh, Sparky, we're not going to eradicate the inner sin of racism right. in anyone's <laughs> lifetime. Right. Like that truly really <laughs> is outside our reach. Mm. What is within our reach is being able to look at a system, recognize it for what it is, admit it for what it is, mm. admit our part in it, mm -hmm. call it out. We call it by name. When, when Joe politician is saying something that, you know, like, okay, that sounds true, but is it? Let me pull up the Google, you know, yeah. let me pull up Google. Is it, is it true? <laughs> is it true in context? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Is it true within a broader historical context? You know, mm. like you go all the way down the rabbit hole, mm. understand the system for what it is and then change it mm. because you, I mean, pardon my French, but because you give a damn, you know, yeah. like that, that's it. That's it. Like, that's all we have to do. Mm. And unfortunately, it's one of the hardest things to do because the system is set up to, it's set up for our comfort. It's set up so that it is so much easier just to, I don't know, roll over and watch Netflix. Like, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's. But even but that, it's, it's even, it's even on Netflix. Like we could really do better. <laughs> Yeah, like Netflix is literally like, here's the show about that thing that you could actually be acting on. Yes. Yeah. Well, oh, man, like I, somebody um, I saw on Twitter, somebody said, like, I learned about Black Wall Street because of Watchmen, because yeah. of the show Watchmen. And I thought that can't possibly be true. And I Googled it and it was true. And I was like, oh, my God. And that was the beginning, right, of their journey yeah. of education. Um and uh and and yeah like like you said like yes learn yes change your heart do what you can um you need to do the work internally but also you got to give a damn um yeah. you have to care enough to engage in in the issue and engage honestly um there's a lot that you know we as white people don't know that i i as a white woman am still figuring out still learning still um trying to piece together and that is simply because um for you know all of the things that we had discussed before um and so when i when i approach politics when i approach um you know uh school board meetings or city council meetings um or things like that um being informed on the actual issues that are that are being presented really matters. Um, that being said, there's this word that keeps floating around, and I'm sure you've heard it, especially in white evangelical communities, especially something that's being touted by pastors. And it is the idea that this is too divisive, that talking politics is divisive. What do you say to that? I say... I say malarkey. Mm. I mean, actual malarkey. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> here's the thing. Um, the Bible calls for us to be divisive. You mm. know, like, what does that word even mean? Mm -hmm. it, 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 things that separate us from the flock, things that separate us from other people. Well, 
if we're going, if that matters so much to us, then I, I got news for every Christian out there. But the Bible literally calls for you to set yourself apart from the herd. <laughs> like, I can't think of a more divisive message than all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And unless you believe in this being, you will burn in hell. I don't care what your God's name is. I don't care how good you've been. I don't care what your saints are. Unless you believe this one thing, you are going to hell. There's not a more divisive message in the world. And yet we are okay with that. Mm-hmm. We're taught to be okay with that. We're taught that we're supposed to take it on a chin and, and go bravely through the world, delivering this message no matter how it's received. So I fail to understand how we aren't supposed to take justice, something that the Bible is keenly, something that is so heavily ingrained in the in the biblical message in God's heart for people, how we're not supposed to care about justice enough to be on opposite ends of the people. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I, I think that is, I think it is actual malarkey. <laughs> it is the most, cowardice, the most cowardly thing you could say to a person. <laughs> mm, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that you, you know, you share how, how I feel too. Um, yeah. It's, it's bonkers um, that we can take such a firm stance on issues like abortion. Right. Which is, uh, you know, supposedly like, you know, we call it being pro-life. Um, but the reality is that like, well, are we being actually pro-life in all of these other areas? Not in the least. There is nothing pro-life about the pro-life movement. And that's part of the reason why I disengage from it. Like, mm. it's not even a matter of principle for me anymore. Yeah. Of course, I don't want, you know, like, of course, I don't want babies to die. Well, of course not. Right. That, that goes without saying. Right. But that doesn't have anything to do with a political movement. Like I still have a duty as a citizen, as a human being, to be aware of where political pieces are lying. Mm. You know, of of being a pawn in a, in a very political game, and that goes with both sides of the aisle. You know what I mean? Like, by no means do I ever encourage anyone to vote Democrat just for the sake of voting Democrat. You know? Right. Because that's a whole other kettle of that's a whole other kettle of racist worms like, <laughs> <laughs> we each have an individual responsibility to understand the powers that are at play yeah. and the ban abortion movement it, it does nothing to preserve life it does nothing to protect life mm. banning abortion will not end abortion mm. that has been proven right. that has been since the I mean, since the beginning of time, I mean, legal abortion was only a new thing. <laughs> do, do people realize that, like, legal legalizing abortion was a new thing, right? So, abortion existed before it was legal. Yeah, it existed while it was legal, and now you want to ban it again and think that you're going to win something. Think that you know that life is going to be protected somehow, mm. even as you are stealing people's health care, even as you are denying them homes, even as you are shrinking the middle class into nothing, even as more and more Americans are sinking into poverty, mm. even as people are, you know, deciding whether they're going to eat today or have their insulin, you know, and, and you want to talk about your preserving life. I'm supposed to throw my vote behind someone because they said some pretty words about abortion, how they don't believe in it. Two minutes after they did believe in it, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Like, are, are, are we are we serious? We uh, have to be smarter than that. I, I honestly think that we are 
kidding ourselves if we think that God cares about where we take the box so much, so much as did we look at what was actually going on? Mm. Did we actually look at the ill, the ill that was in the world? Did we actually go out of our way to help the orphan and the widow and the least of these and the oppressed? What did we do? Did we help take down those structures? If we did not, if we said, oh, but I, <laughs> mm. I helped ban abortion, Okay. (laughs) I I made a thing illegal. You're welcome. I made a thing illegal. Yeah. There was all this other stuff going on. There's all these other politicians who would have helped take down those infrastructures, but they were pro-abortion. So I didn't vote for them, but I did vote for the guy who said that he would give me this bit of legalization and Mm. I got it. Yeah. Yay for me. Like I, I it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't add up for me. (laughs) Mm. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yep. I feel you there. It is taught as like the biggest issue. It's like, you know, most uh, white Christians, we we vote on single issue. And yeah, that's I, it. I literally had people say to my face, I hear everything you're saying. I, I, I want to, you know, I want these systems to come down, but I just can't vote for somebody who supports abortion. And mm. I'm like, <laughs> so you are, so you have quite neatly fallen into the trap. Like that's the other thing people don't really understand is that the Republican Party galvanized this anti-abortion movement to put power behind the GOP. They knew that if they made it an issue of, this is the thing that's killing babies, you know, like, this is the thing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) This is the thing. This is the thing you as a Christian need to care about. Yeah. They got the Christian vote that way. That's all they needed. Mm. And the fact that so many of us are, are willing to hang our vote on a single issue on a single issue that comes down to legislation and not actual solution because again banning abortion is not going to end abortion it's not going to help a struggling mother who can't afford to have a baby it's not going to help a young woman who's been raped and doesn't want to have a baby it's not going to (laughs) help you know all the reasons why a woman gets abortion because i don't know if people know this you know like i i under like and not, I'm not saying that for some people it isn't a personal choice of I just don't want to have a child right now. There are right. plenty of women who, who think that way. Mm-hmm. But like for a, a good majority of women, there are a lot of economic factors that come into play. Mm-hmm. It is impossible to have a child right now. I cannot take care of this child. Having this child will leave me hungry, leave me destitute, leave me without a home. Yeah. <laughs> leave me with no way to take care of it. Mm-hmm. We have no solutions for them. We have a foster care system, which is a nightmare. That's a whole other issue. Oh my gosh. Hold on. We have a foster care system that is a nightmare mm-hmm. that I wouldn't advise bundling any child into, to be honest with you. Like, the, the, what solution does a pregnant mother have? Right. Who can't, who isn't ready to be pregnant, who can't economically afford to be pregnant? Yeah. Banning abortion solves none of that. We, we we put no money, you know, the pro-life movement puts no money into solving those issues. Mm. It's all about this one piece of legislation, which I honestly think that they, they bank on the fact that it won't actually be resolved. <laughs> right. I mean, like people constantly be going back and forth about whether abortion should or shouldn't be legal. Right. You know, a, a Republican president will, you know, maybe push the measure a little, a little bit and then we'll get a Democrat in office who will pull it back. And it's like free votes for the rest of your life because we have an issue that we're not, we're not actually ever going to resolve. Right, 
Right. Yeah, no, that's so true. Um, and, and, you know, all of those issues especially make me think of like domestic violence. A woman gets pregnant and um, she is in a violent relationship. She's in an abusive relationship. And now um, she doesn't know what to do. She can't seem to escape. She has nowhere to turn. Um, pregnancy is like a nightmare. It sounds like a nightmare to her. Um, and she has no real way out. Um, and, you know, before anybody listening suggests that a woman in that situation can just leave, I would invite you to put yourself under the thumb and complete control and authority of another person and have them scrutinize your every move and control your money and control where you go and who you talk to. And then go ahead and tell me, right, that, that they have a choice and that these women have a way out. They have no way out. So let's get that out of the way first. Um, but the idea of a, a woman in an abusive relationship becoming pregnant and then trying to face domestic violence. Um, it's very common for violent partners to be violent parents. It just, it just is. It's, it's, you know, it's not an issue of the age or the gender of the person necessarily. Um, it can be, gender can be a factor, but a lot of times it's, it's not the, a matter of age. It's a matter of I am exerting power over my environment and this is a part of my environment and that's how I'm going to do that. Um, so, I think that's one of the issues that I come up against with particularly with, you know, pro-life, the pro-life movement, so to speak, um, wherein uh, we were going to go ahead and outlaw abortion because abortion is wrong and because we value life. And, you know, like every woman should just like suck it up and like and, and I've heard the argument that like, well, you know, even rape vic victims. I remember making the argument. At, the, uh, at one point in my life of like, well, you know, just bringing about more destruction is not going to heal anything or anyone. And so, you know, women should keep their baby. Um, but now I think specifically of, of women in, um, in relationships where there is domestic violence. We'll go ahead and outlaw abortion, but leave that woman in a violent relationship. Right. That doesn't yeah. sound particularly pro-life to me. Don't listen to women when they say we're overwhelmingly being abused and the system is set up to protect abusive men. Mm. Cut welfare, cut health care, mm -hmm. do all the things that make it so much harder for people to sustain life mm. while saying that you're pro-life. Mm -hmm. I mean, and we've talked a lot about these extreme situations for why a woman may not want to keep a baby or may not be in a position to keep a baby. And, you know, people can disagree with me, but I don't, I don't, don't believe that extremes are necessary. It is, oh, we need to be okay with saying that it is okay for a woman not to have, to want to have a child. It is yeah. okay to simply find out you're pregnant and be like, <laughs> I know myself I'm not ready for a child. I don't want a child. I wouldn't be a good mother. Now is not the time. I mean, whatever your reason is, mm -hmm. it is okay for women not to want children because there's a mm -hmm. huge societal, there is just a societal mentality that that's not okay. Mm. It, it It's pervasive. It's in all of our language. It's in, it's in the way that we think about motherhood. 
If you just carried the child to term, I'm sure you'd fall in love with it. No, that's not the case. Mm. You know how many children grow up in families that are dysfunctional, destructive, that they have to spend years of therapy, you Mm -hmm. know, detangling themselves from? There are so many people alive today who could probably look at their parents and say, you know what, mom and dad, you probably shouldn't have had me. You were not ready to be parents, you weren't good parents, and I'm going to spend the rest of my life untangling your mess, you know? Mm. That is a reality. Yeah. For me, being pro pro life is understanding that women that pro choice is not the enemy of pro life. Mm. Women deserve choices. Women yeah. deserve the full anatomy of their bodies and of their mental, you know, and of their mental spaces. Mm-hmm. If this woman doesn't want to be a mother, why have we not invo- invested more money into researching ways of presenting, you know, pregnancy counter- contraception? You're telling me that we can like put rockets on the moon, but we can't come up with a way to prevent pregnancy, <laughs> you know, not like, safely, not- Kim, <laughs> we can, you know, just definitely not safely. <laughs> I'm just saying like, you know, it all comes yeah. down, I'm, it all comes down to where you put your money. Mm. If we cared about giving women a choice, we could find a way to give them a choice. If we cared about the fact that not every woman wants to have a child, can have a child, is prepared to have a child, we would invest money into figuring out how to solve that solution. I mean, solve that problem, right? Mm -hmm. Instead, we attack a symptom of the problem and act like we're we're so morally high for it. And I I don't understand that. I mean, I think that our actions speak louder than our words. We don't care about life. We care about legislation. You know, mm. it's a, it's a talking point. Yeah. And I mean, I, and that's part, it's a huge part of why I can't stand behind the movement of pro-life because it's, it's not, it's not pro-life. Right. Right. Well, you mentioned like disengaging from that movement. Um, and I was reading something earlier today, actually about, um, you know, yes, pro-life is racist. Um, pro-choice is also racist, born out of uh, the the desire to control people groups, to, um, you know, ensure that uh, demographically, you know, yeah. the that America looked the way that people wanted it to look, that America looked the way that we as white people wanted it to look. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, you mentioned, like, it, so- it sounds, based on our conversation, that you disengage from the whole gamut. From pro-life, pro-choice, the whole thing. Right. Because you, you have to. Like, once you recognize that a system is toxic, that it's broken, and that it's not actually going to do the thing that you want it to do, <laughs> then you can't, you know, yeah. you can't continue to engage in it. You know, mm-hmm. the only way that it's going to stop and we're going to come up with something better is if we disengage. If we right. say, actually, that thing isn't going to do what I want it to do. Let's come up with something better. Right. Um Because that's the funny thing is that like when it's convenient to them, people will recognize systems, right? Like Mm. I've had so many people talk about the fact that like, well, don't black babies matter? You know that, you know, abortion overwhelmingly affects people of color and there's a system of targeting families of color. It's sort of a eugenics that's happening, you Mm. know, that uh, that they'll point out. And I'm like, no, you are absolutely right. Mm. <laughs> like, abortion. <laughs> like, you are absolutely right. Mm. Uh, you know, like what you said, you know, about pro-choice being racist and about a pro-life being racist is absolutely true. Like that all every American system in place is affected by systems of racism, but you're only willing to acknowledge it in this one area because it benefits you. And that 
I, I'm sorry, I don't play that game. Like either mm -hmm. we're going to acknowledge the whole system mm -hmm. or we're not, or we're not going to play this game. Um, you know, like you can't engage in, I just can't engage in something that I know is broken. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, which brings me to policing. Mm. Um, oh my gosh. I like so much is, is being talked about with regard to policing, um, reform, defund, abolish, you know, so many different words, um, and different ideas that are being uh, circulated about policing. Um, I wonder if you'd tell us a little bit about your perspective on that. Um, yeah, I, it's a very fraught time. Mm -hmm. I think that there is a danger right now to people making this about individuals. Mm. It is not about Joe, the police officer, you know, it's not about your daddy. It's not about your uncle. Like it is not about police officers as individuals. Mm. It is about the system. It is about the fact that since its conception, the police have been used by the wealthy, by these powers, to put other people in line, right? You know, um, there has been corruption from the beginning. There has been cover-ups and lies from the beginning. Statistically, black communities and, and other communities of colors and, and, and immigrants have right. been over-policed, have been afforded no justice, have been hunted and corralled by police authority from the beginning. There, there has never been a moment where the police have governed fairly. Mm. No moment in history where that has ever been true. So mm. we as a people have a duty to recognize that, to decide whether or not we care about it, and then do something about it. Because if you stand on the side of, I don't care, <laughs> then <laughs> that places us on very different sides. That places us on very different sides. And I, I don't, there's no, there's no ifs or ands or buts about that. There's no nice way of saying that. Yeah. There's no way, there's no middle ground here. Um, when it comes to in the individual goodness of cops, like when it comes to the individual, everybody knows somebody. Do you know what I mean? Like this idea, like we cannot fall into the trap that evil is a monolith. Mm -hmm. It has never been. People have always been capable of good. They've always, as well as evil at the same time, you know, yeah. Nazis had loved ones. <laughs> they, loved mm -hmm. their, they loved their wives. They loved their kids. They loved their dogs. Hitler was an artist, you know, mm -hmm. um, People are capable of doing terrible, terrible things and still being decent human beings in other areas, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So you may have a loved one, you may have a friend, you may have a neighbor who is a good person as far as you know, right? Yeah. But that doesn't change the fact that they are plugged into a system that does great evil, that does great harm. Mm. And if you're not, and again, if you're not capable of accepting that reality, and deciding whether or not you care, whether or not you stand on the side of, okay, I see that and ergo we're gonna change that or I see that and we're not gonna change that. Then there's no help for you. There's no help for anybody, but we will be held accountable for it. Mm -hmm. You know, and like whether you're a Christian or not, like uh, I mean, 
I think that, you know, I believe that we are accountable for it. Yeah. And making no choice is a choice. So that's all that that's all that anybody has to say about this issue. Like there what else are we gonna say? Right. This present time. Like we have all the facts, we have all the data. We watched a man kneeling on another man with his hands in his pockets, cavalier as he pleases, mm. take another man's life. Like how many corruption scandals are you is it gonna take before you see the problem and then make your decision, you know? Mm-hmm. There's no at this point in at this point in time, we don't need to see anymore. It's there. Right. You're either making a decision to stand and do the right thing or you're making a decision to do the wrong thing. And that's just that's just kind of where where the buck stops. Yeah. You said something that um especially in the last again, few years, um I've learned more about policing, right? Um, I have not had particularly many experiences with police. I think that something that you said is really um, true for all parties involved, and that is that it's a system that does great harm. Um, it's a system that does great harm to um, to our BIPOC communities, specifically our black communities, Um, it's also a system that does great harm to the officers themselves Mm -hmm. because you are militarizing people and expecting them to respond to situations where they do not need military. You know, um, people having mental health crises Um, people who um, have a flat on the side of the road, people who accidentally lock themselves out of their houses, people who, you know, are scared um, or they're sick or they're hurting or something like that. You know, when 911 is called and the police are dispatched and you are now throwing traumatized people with guns into a setting with other traumatized people who are who have been and are continuing to be traumatized by police and you can't throw that many traumas in a room and then shove some guns in um and expect everyone to walk away unscathed right no absolutely it's ludicrous yeah it i love the way that you put that like it's Unfortunately, I'm very aware of the fact that like the way things are right now, like you and I, we're all like, we're expected to be more in control than the police, right? Like we're expected to be in a situation and be, be calm. Don't be nervous. Don't, don't do anything that would make them feel like you're a threat. Don't do anything that would make them feel like you're about to do something cagey. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. When in reality, like, it should be the flip, right? You know, like yeah. your average Joe citizen could be off the rocker. You know what I mean? Like, and I'm thinking about the man um, who just recently lost his life because he was drunk, you know, he was mm-hmm. asleep in his car when the police were called at Wendy's. And, mm-hmm. you know, you can argue what you want about him being drunk and resisting arrest, but being drunk, <laughs> it shouldn't <laughs> be a death sentence. Resisting no. arrest shouldn't be a death sentence. No. Trying to run away 
shouldn't be a death sentence. Mm-hmm. In short, a citizen should be able to <laughs> act out, for lack of a, of a better word, they should be able to be mentally incapacitated. They should be able to be um, to be having, you know, like PTSD or any other kind of trauma and still depend on the police to do their job in de-escalating the situation and getting them to where they need to be safely. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, do you know how many homeless people end up in altercations with the police and end up killed yeah. because they're not in their right mind? Right. You know? Mm-hmm. And it it's... It's so painful for me. Like it's so heartbreaking that as we can't seem to see what a what a noxious formula we've created. Yeah. Of we're going to traumatize these police officers, you know, through their training. Um, we're gonna mm-hmm. tell them, you know, we're gonna tell them that it's them against the world and that everybody's out to get them and that, you know, the only people that they can depend on is is their brothers and sisters in blue. Mm. Um going to indoctrinate them with you know hours of footage of grisly deaths yeah <laughs> uh, and then we're going to throw them out into the public as you said who's been traumatized by the police and we're going to hope for the best and that's mm. the best that we can do as people i don't believe that no i don't believe that no not at all it's not creative like we're just not being creative enough like it's that is quite possibly the laziest uh the the, the laziest option that we could have come to um, yeah. And I, I mean, there's, there's something else there that like, uh, a lot of people make the argument, um, it's a pretty terrible argument. I wish they would stop making it. Um, <laughs> I wish we would stop making it, uh, of like, well, what are you going to do? Who are you going to call if somebody breaks into your house? And, I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and I'm like, well, most of the people, first of all, who make that argument have guns in their houses. So there's yeah. number one, um, you wanted your gun for this express purpose. Right. Um, so there's that. But also, let's let's take a step back and ask, why is somebody breaking into your house? Yeah. I, I don't think people do that just for kicks. You know? Mm-hmm. People break into other people's homes because they're desperate. Right. Um, and, you know, whether it is for um, to feed an addiction or to feed their families. Um, and, you know, a lot of people are like, well, okay, I would do anything for my family, right? I would do anything yeah. for my kids. I would steal. I would I would kill. I would anything for my kids. And, you know, I've got kids. That's p- pretty freaking true. I would do anything for my kids um, to protect them, to keep them safe, right? But I would hope that I would also recognize that there are other human beings in the world. Um, and so if somebody is, you know, breaking into my house, um, I'm not going to pretend like I'm going to keep that together. Um, but what if we could prevent people from needing to break into other people's houses? Right. Because we can sit here and argue all day. Well, what are you going to do when the worst happens? Well, yeah, we could talk about that or we could talk about why the worst keeps happening. Right. We could talk about fact that police do not prevent the worst from happening no police (laughs) get called in after the fact when someone Mm. is robbing your house the the robbery is happening (laughs) (laughs) somebody's already (laughs) inside (laughs) they're inside yeah by the time the police get there 
you know, yeah. the overwhelmingly, you know, the altercation is already over. Yeah. You know, Hollywood, I mean, uh, propaganda, you know, is one of my favorite words, but like we've been indoctrinated with all this new cop media, right? You yeah. know, the hundred different cop shows and, you know, the movies about a few good men and no God. You know, <laughs> just a few. Just a few. Yeah. Um, where you see these, like, these uh, these grand shootouts happening oh, with, God. you know, robbers and, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And that's just not reality. The reality of policing is that 90% of the time they're coming in after the fact. Yeah. Or they're dealing with paperwork, right? So, like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, and all the, every bit of data that you could possibly look into will tell you that police do not prevent the worst from happening. They do not lower crime. Right. More police in, in the pouring more police at the problem does not prevent the problem. Right. So when are we going to start looking at the problem? Yeah. If you want to, if you want to stop someone from breaking into your home, we need to start looking into what causes people to break into other people's homes. Yeah. If you want someone not to accost you in an alley, we need to start thinking about what causes people to accost people in alleys. Why is someone <laughs> mentally ill running around without getting health care? Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Oh, gosh. The vast majority of the time, they're veterans. Shocking. Um, Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I I think that that's so true. Like, why are why why don't we just talk about that? Why don't we address that issue? Um, Because it would force us right to look at healthcare, to look at education, to look at redlining food deserts, um, like ALEC nutrition uh, assistance programs like SNAP, WIC. we would have to really address the inequities in those systems. And even down to drug addiction, we'd have to decriminalize addiction because the truth is um, drug addiction is an illness. It's a health crisis, right? It arises out of trauma. Mm -hmm. You know, healthy, happy people don't go, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to try some crack today. We don't, you know, that's not a thing. Um, but what is a thing is people who are scared, who are desperate, who know that they um, have no way out, you know. Um, and we always talk about fight, flight, or freeze um, when it comes to trauma and that that's our, our response. But um, what happens when you're backed into a corner and you can't run, right? And, and you know, if you fight back, the police will come. And we know what happens when that when the police come. Yeah. And you know that if you freeze, it's the end. Right. So what is your only escape? Right. I, I can I can escape through this drug. Yeah. No, I mean it it's one of those things that, you know, and I feel like I've said this so many times, but I, I keep it, that's my life. Um <laughs> it's <laughs> not really understanding how we don't get it yet. Like we've, we've known for quite a long time that addiction, crime, violence is overwhelmingly linked to poverty. Yeah. The poorer and more desperate you make a people, the more these things rise. And again, throwing police at them hasn't helped anything. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's a little bit of, you know, a, the one hand, you know, rubbing the other hand. Um, mm-hmm. We need more people in prisons because now prison is a business. Now prison means free labor. Yeah. Let's 
so we're creating all these policies that allow corporations to screw over the middle class. Yeah. You know, rob them of, you know, pay and wages, squeeze them of, you know, of their dollars, rob them of time with their families. People are getting poorer and working longer. Mm. Yeah. They're getting more desperate. Now they're getting addicted to things. Oh, well, let's criminalize, you know, let's criminalize the drugs and throw them in prison. Mm. It, you know, it's a cycle. Mm-hmm. And the fact that we can't see that, I, I, I don't, it, it blows my mind, but um, yeah. until we interrupt that cycle, until we say enough is enough, mm-hmm. it's just going to get worse. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's a classic example of forcing a, a victim to come up with all the evidence, right? The impetus for gathering evidence is so that somebody can be held accountable is so that, you know, we don't allow this to happen to something, somebody else. But unfortunately the burden of proof seems to land on the victim um, just about every time when it comes to poverty, when it comes to uh, BIPOC communities. And it makes me think also of the, you know, that classic argument that now people have discovered in the last couple of weeks of, well, what if somebody rapes you? Who are you going to call if somebody rapes you? Yeah, like, just, not the, the police. Well, not the police. <laughs> Thank you for saying that. Oh, my gosh. When has it ever been the police? Right. When uh, it, the police do not help rape. I, I'm sorry. They do not. No, they no, do not. They do not help rape victims. No, they do not. They're, so much evidence to the contrary yeah in fact a huge part of the the me too movement would not be necessary would never have been necessary if police were inter interveners mm. you know they were um dedicated to holding other men accountable and in mm. fact you know i invite anybody you know listening to to do the research into uh, you know police and, and, and sexual harassment lawsuits and whatnot oh my gosh there's a huge amount of um, that going on in the police force itself. Yep. And they are, um, you know, they, they're kind of allowed to do it with impunity because, you know, they are who they are. So, mm-hmm. Well, and- it's legal in, in 32 states. It's legal for an officer to have sex with someone um, in their custody. Right. I mean, that's I mean, rape. That. That's, that. that's rape. <laughs> yeah. 32 <laughs> states. That's insane that it's legal for a police officer to have sex with someone who is in their custody, that they have arrested, and this person is in their custody. That is the definition of rape. Right? Right? And and, and that's the state of the world, right? You know, like, I think it was um, just... People... People, and I've heard people say that, oh... They're, they're old laws. It's old language that we just haven't gotten rid of yet. Nobody actually does this. And I'm like, okay, again, what's my favorite word? Malarkey. Like, <laughs> actual malarkey. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> if you think for an instance that, I mean, there, there's a reason why that mm-hmm. language was written in the first place. Yeah. And if we haven't taken the time to dismantle it, if we haven't taken the time to reassess and be like, actually, I don't know what made a crackpot decide that this was a legal thing that needed to be legalized. <laughs> We're going to legalize it because yeah. what the actual, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so like, I mean, that brings us, you know, full circle. 
Um, all of these things clearly influence how, um, how we vote, our perspective and our understanding and our education on all of these matters. It, ma- it, it matters yeah. when it comes to how we vote. Like it, it just does. Um, and it informs how we vote. So then if we're looking at this from a sense of moral obligation to address these systemic issues, to address more specifically systemic racism, um, or what I've also heard, and I heard, um, and I, I absolutely love it, is uh, white patriarchy, because it just comprehensively like, you know, grabs the whole thing. Um, and so... Um, we have this moral obligation of addressing systemic racism and white patriarchy. And so that means that we have to participate in changing it. We have to, um, in order to address it, we have to vote. So to me personally, that feels like a moral obligation to vote. Um, This particular election is incredibly awful. Yeah. Um, I have no freaking clue what to do. I do know what not to do. Um, <laughs> but I right. <laughs> I know who I'm not voting for. Right. Oh, God. But um, that moral obligation of how to vote in this, um, in this particular election and how that could impact you. And, um, and I mean, obviously... You can't speak for the entire black community because it's not a monolith. Um, yeah. But, you know, there are still real ramifications for the black community and, and black women in particular, if you feel like addressing that. Um, what is your perspective on on the issue that we're facing when it comes to this particular election? Um, I mean, yeah, you put it into really good words. Uh, it is a whammy. Like, in... I could not think of, oh, okay, sorry, you know, I am a writer. I'm, I'm pretty sure I could come up some, with some more horrendous scenarios, but like, <laughs> it's up there. Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, because, you know, on the one hand, um, it, is no, it is no secret. I am no f- fan or friend of Trump. Um, mm-hmm. There is no way to be. Yeah. He is, um, he isn't always a charlatan. It's something that, and that's the thing I, I do want to preface for anyone listening is that um, it is very tempting. It, it's easy to hear criticisms of Trump and say, this is a response to losing an election. Okay. I didn't lose an election. I wasn't up for, I wasn't up, <laughs> I wasn't up to be elected. So I didn't lose anything. Mm, you know? yeah. I am a citizen participating in a political process. I am trying to vote people into power who I think that are at the very least going to do something good for the greater good of all. Yeah. Yeah. And before Donald Trump was even announced as a candidate, I was aware of him as a person. Mm -hmm. I became aware of him because I was researching and learning as much as I could about my own history. You know, the African-American experience Mm. was that's not something that I was raised in. It's something that I had to teach myself. Mm. Uh, to dismantle my own prejudice and my own bias and the in the wounds that I had inflicted on myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I became aware of him um, when I became aware of the uh, exonerated five. You know, some people know them as the Central Park Five. Yeah, I became 
people aware of his role in that. You know, I kind of made the 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 uh, the clue in that he was that guy in Home Alone. <laughs> you know, and then who is this guy? This guy who took out this you know front page ad, um, calling for the deaths of you know five boys. Mm. Uh, who, who lobbied for their deaths and, and to, to this day still insists on their guilt, um, mm-hmm. even though they've been exonerated, even though the killer has confessed and, you know, been duly punished. Right. Um, that is how I became aware of him. Mm-hmm. So the more I learned about Donald Trump, <laughs> the more, you know, it, it was very easy for me to see what is plainly true. He, he is a terrible human being right he cares about no one so much as he cares about himself Mm. he's all the things that i was taught as a christian not to be as you said Mm -hmm. Um, but before 2016 he was just some guy on tv he was just some terrible guy who had done terrible things who was rich and got away with it like many rich terrible men who get away with things yeah and then 2016 happens and I'm pointing out to everybody I know, do you know about this guy? Do you know about, <laughs> like, hold on, wait a minute. <laughs> Before right. you cast your vote for this man, do, do, you, do you know mm-hmm. the things that he's done? Mm-hmm. Do you know about the people that he's swindled? Do you know about the people that he's defunded, defrauded? Yeah. Do you know how many sexual assault allegations are have been cast this man's way long before yeah. we got here? Like, this is not a democratic plot. This is his life. This right. This is his history. Right. Do you know that he said? And over and over and over again, I was told that it didn't matter. Mm. <laughs> it didn't matter, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's all I want to say in preface to, I, I have never been, nor will I ever be a supporter of Trump. I cannot in any, for any reason, cast a vote for Donald Trump. Right. But then on the other end, we have Joe Biden, who is the, if you want a picture for what white supremacy looks like in a democratic form, it is Joe mm-hmm. Biden. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, yeah. if you want a picture of someone who's out of touch, <laughs> it's mm-hmm. Joe Biden. Yeah. Hello, Joe Biden. I am a black woman. Thank you. Like, <laughs> 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 like, if you want, and then there's the fact that like he has also been accused of sexual assault. And mm-hmm. I believe firmly in, you know, I believe firmly in, our responsibility as people to not only take those things seriously, but to go the extra mile, understanding that women have historically been silenced, that the system is set up against them, that it takes incredible bravery for them to come forward, that it takes an an extreme mental and emotional toll on their lives to come forward. Mm -hmm. We have the responsibility to go the extra mile to make sure that their voices are heard. Joe Biden does not get a pass because he is a Democrat. Right. Because that doesn't mean anything to me. Joe Biden is just a man and he's running for office. Mm-hmm. So where does that leave me, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I cannot tell anybody how to vote. I can't tell anybody what to do. Right. All I know is that I personally, what I have decided for myself is I have a moral obligation to vote for whoever I believe is going to do the most good for all people as possible. Mm-hmm. That is in no way Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> I yep. haven't decided who that is yet. And yeah. I'm okay with admitting that. And it's because it's hard, because it's difficult. Yeah. Because I would much rather someone take the time take the time to wrestle with it 
take the time to deliberate, to take the time to look at the policies, Mm -hmm. take a look at their platform. What is this going to push? Is this going to start taking taking down some of those systems that we've been talking about? Or is it going to make those systems all the stronger? Is it going to reinforce those systems? Mm. Yeah. There's a duty to be realistic. We are unfortunately held hostage to a two-party system that has been set up by Alec. (laughs) (laughs) One of these days, we should talk solely about Alec. Yes, we should. (laughs) (laughs) We are now in a trap, not of our own making, but we are nevertheless caught in it where voting for anyone besides one of the two, you know, major party um, voting for anyone besides someone in one of the two major parties mm-hmm. is tantamount to amount, you know, to throwing your vote away. Like it shouldn't be that way. Mm-hmm. It's unfair that it's that way. It's mm-hmm. wrong that it's that way. Mm-hmm. That is one more system that we need to dedicate time to dismantling. Yeah. But we can't ignore it. Ignoring mm-hmm. it does nothing. Right. You know, mm-hmm. pretending like it doesn't exist does nothing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So all of these things need to be considered when you cast your vote. Mm-hmm. What systems am I enforcing? What systems am I going to be a part of dismantling? Mm. And will my vote be effective? Right. Or will I be putting a chip somewhere where I don't want to put a chip? And that shouldn't be on us, but it is, you know, like that, that's the, that's the fate that we've been handled. And, we've been handed and I think about one of my favorite quotes in all time um you know is from Lord of the Rings you know when Gandalf tells Frodo that you know nobody wants to live to see Mm. happen but Mm. when it does happen to you you have to decide what you're going to do with it like yeah it's regrettable that we're here it's regrettable that these things are true but we are here and they are true Mm-hmm. You have to decide what we're going to do with it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, thank you so much. Um, this was incredible. I loved talking with you. And yes, I am all for just doing a whole conversation around Alec, um, doing a whole conversation around, you know, what to do with this ridiculous two-party system. Um, and and among other things, I would love to talk with you more Um but thank you so much for taking the time and the energy um, and just the the labor that you have put forth into this. Um, I really deeply appreciate it. Um, and uh, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Like, it's been a real, it's been a real joy, Joy. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Check in next week to catch another honest conversation this time about family trauma, what it's like to engage in politics as a Native American living in another country, and the future we are all facing together. You've been listening to 99 Lead Balloons, honest talk about shit society ignores. Special thanks to my guest, Kimberly Weir, for joining me. For more information on projects Kim is involved with, follow her on Twitter at Kjour. Links to studies referenced are available in the liner notes. Graphic and web design by Chris Campbell Creative. Go to chriscampbell.com for more. Theme song by Luciano Music Company. Licensed by Premium Beat by Shutterstock. Produced and edited by Stoke the Wild Studios. 
To stay up to date on episodes and content, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at 99pod or go to 99pod.com. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next week. Thank you.